Colleagues, welcome to Global Ed Talks. Anthony McKay, CEO and President of the National Centre on Education and the Economy. And today uh, I welcome uh, a very special colleague, friend and guest to Global Ed Talks, Dr. Aaron Thompson. Aaron, welcome. Thanks, Tony. How are you? I am very well and we're delighted that you are, are joining us and as colleagues will know, uh, we are going to focus today on leadership, uh, not any leadership, but leadership that is highly culturally competent. Uh, before I say more about uh, the nature of our conversation, uh, of course, people are aware of your multiple roles and responsibilities and currently, of course, uh, president of the Kentucky Council on Post-Secondary education, uh, but you've occupied uh, many roles uh, across higher education, uh, across uh, school education, across the entire system of education, both within your home state, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, but also uh, your national roles. Uh, you're also a trustee of NCE, so it's great to have you in multiple capacities. But um, as author, uh, as academic, uh, as leader, as administrator, uh, how would you define your current role uh, or the way in which you think about your work at this point and maybe just inject a little of the personal into a kind of self-introduction? Well, thank you, Tony. I appreciate being a guest on this Global Ed Talk and I appreciate actually the question uh, how you want to start out this conversation. I will tell you, I'm just old country boy. It's what I tell folk. I, I'm from central Appalachia. My father was an illiterate coal miner. And we were sharecroppers. I was born in the late 50s during a time of segregation, born during a time of uh, where, as an African-American, I didn't have access to go to the hospital. So my mother had me at home with the midwife. And my mother was the educator of the family with an eighth grade education. And as I said, my father, he wrote his name with an X. He was illiterate. So as I see myself in the role, and my role, as I, as I call myself, of service to the state and to higher education, even though I'm officially the chief higher education officer for the state of Kentucky, I, I take that as a, a, a marker, if you will, about what I need to do to really serve those that need serving the most. And that's those folk who have been left out of getting the kind of education that produces a good high quality uh, input into our civic society as well as our economic society. Not having uh, a good K-12 education and not having a good higher education uh, experience lends us then to that understanding that we may not have been of good service to the people that we promised to be of good service to. So I see myself as a leader who wants to, I see myself as a faculty member still, but as a leader who wants to make sure he dedicates himself to the equity agenda, uh, to the excellence, to the high rigor, and the high output of, of our system as a whole to make sure that no one's left behind but get what we purported we promised uh, to them from the beginning that they walk out knowing they had it. Aaron, um, I'm holding up a copy of your most recent publication, co-authored, Implementing Innovative 
leadership in an inclusive learning environment. Now, what you say essentially through, I think this book, this handbook, is that we need a stronger application of the evidence base that we have around how you exercise culturally competent leadership. And that's what we need. But before we get into what that does mean and how we become culturally competent leaders, can you help us with some understanding about uh, the definition of terms? Because so many conversations start out by talking about a commitment to inclusion, to diversity, to equity. When you think about this work, say a little about how you operationalize definitions so that we are clear that we're sharing a language. Absolutely, and I think this is important because this, this has been a hang up with all of us education folk in the past. We say we're dedicated to diversity, we value it, we believe in it, but when it comes down to operationalizing it in our institutional systems, then we have a harder time doing it. And I think it's because we mean different things. So as a leader, I wanted to make sure that I put in this, and I call it a handbook, I call it a workbook, because most of my books, as you, as you well know, are five, 600 pages. This is a 129 cookbook, we call it, right? And a part of it is making sure we're on the same page with our nomenclature, with what we mean. And, and I will tell you, what that means to me. Diversity is an aspect of the population. Uh, it's a piece of the demographic. It could be race, could be gender, could be uh, sexual orientation, it could be ethnicity, could be the, you know, a variety of things that goes to point out as an element of who we are as humans, as a people. So that's important to understand. Uh, and I like to use the analogy to finish out the rest of my, of my definitions. And I think about a dance. If I am having a dance and I want my dance to consist of diversity, then I'll invite all kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds to come to my dance. Now, inclusion is making sure that everyone has the chance to dance and that everyone dances, that, that they are bringing it to the table as best as they can. Equity is actually that big input. We see this with uh, you know, student support. We see it with uh, co-curricular support as well as curricular support. Equity is making sure that everybody knows how to dance, that everybody has their opportunity based on their baseline to know how to dance. So diversity, as an example, is an aspect of the population. Cultural competence is recognizing and appreciating all three of those and then have a measurement tool with it. How well are we teaching people how to dance? How well have they been given an opportunity to be included? How well are we actually doing from our vantage point to make sure that we have a diverse uh, building with teachers, with students, a diverse institution, higher ed in our case, how well are we offering the chance for everybody to take part in that dance and to be in fact able to say that I'm included from a standpoint of being wanted and desired because of the richness that I bring to the table. The idea that we learn more from people that are different from us than we do from people like us should be truly the core element of what a good high quality education is. Aaron. How do I become 
a far more culturally competent leader? Well, you know, first of all, understand what leadership is. Leadership is re really understanding the constituency that you're trying to influence to some degree, but it's as much about serving that constituency as it is anything else. And so there's a four that I use anyway in my model, a, a, uh, a design, a continuous improvement design that allows you to understand how you grow yourself and then how you apply that growth to the organization you represent. And I call it A to the fourth. Uh, and A to the fourth, four pieces, four A's. I, I, the first A is awareness. How well are you able to self-actualize? How well are you able to understand your bias, implicit bias, explicit bias? How well are you able to understand those that you serve, whether it's your students, your employees, your teachers, your staff? How well are you able to do that? And then how willing are you to get information to help you to grow in that area? So the first A is about self-actualization. It is about awareness. It is about understanding the world around you that's different, how well you're willing to learn from people that are different than you that will help you to grow. I call that building your knowledge or my IQ phase, I call it. That leads, if you think about a Venn diagram of arrows going around in a continuous improvement cycle, that leads to acknowledgement. Acknowledgement is saying, as a leader, you have impact on those that you serve. And it could be a positive impact or a negative impact. If you're carrying negative bias, it will have a negative impact. Know that you have a direct impact on the people that you serve, one way or the other. A good leader would want to develop a good impact, good outcomes, whether it's gap closing with your students or is whether or not you're making your faculty and staff feeling important in that environment. I call that acknowledgement my social intelligence phase. Know that good leadership has a strong SQ, uh, very strong. That leads to the other A, which is acceptance. And I argue you are what you eat. If you put yourself in an environment, put people around you, that will challenge you enough to, for you to grow, but in fact, that you would understand where they're coming from based on their uniqueness. If you can understand where students are coming from based on their cultural understanding and knowledge and who they are, if you can respond to that and can measure that, in fact, that leads to empathy. And empathy is about emotional intelligence, which is the highest form of intelligence in a leadership paradigm. And the fourth one is about action. How well have you designed a strategic process that would allow this to be put into the system? How well have you designed a strategic process to allow yourself to continue to grow as a leader? How well are you able to think about where you're at in your baseline and grow from there and your institution in his or her baseline and grow from there? So that to me is really the process that I use in this book to help people understand how they can employ it personally as well as professionally uh, with the folks that they serve. So Aaron, let me take you to your fourth A, action and the system. Yep, because you know um, NCEE is in the leadership business and we are working with leaders, with principals, with superintendents, with district leaders, with state leaders. Uh, you know our work. And my understanding is therefore that if I have developed this capacity 
as a leader. And obviously that requires a lot of support. And we're in that business. We are attempting to ensure that each of our leaders that we are working with become culturally competent, but then to act, to apply that to the system, right? At multiple levels, say a word about how you see this kind of leadership shifting the system to what you talked about as being the dual aims of equity and excellence. Tell us something about how we are going to apply culturally competent leadership to get high performing systems. You know, another excellent question. And I, and I pose an answer with this in mind. Any good organization will look at herself on a regular basis in order to grow. But any good organization will have a strong mission and a set of strong values. NCEE has those already. So you're not talking about creating just a change model for change itself. That's why I argue good systematic leadership creates an action plan that creates an incremental process of change. In other words, if you say that a, the goal of NCE to create high-performing systems, that high-performing system cannot leave anybody behind. You can't leave people of color behind, low-income people behind. And if we think we are doing that still, it causes us to self-evaluate to say, what can we do in order to create an incremental systematic plan, A to the fourth, all the way over again, that would allow us then to look at ourselves and look at the mission. So it's not really changing the mission. I argue that it's giving your mission some gas. It's allowing you to evaluate that mission to see if you need to include anything or if you've excluded anything. So let's say gap closing then is a measurement tool. I mean, a me metric. If we want to look at gaps, then we would look to see how well we are doing what we're doing with our goals, with our strategies uh, in, that high, in building a high performance system with equity in mind. That saying that it has to be a part of the thread, as you argue that a good high performance system is about a thread, right? It's about doing a lot of things, high expectations, high rigor, and high input, all of those items. Some people need that more than others. How well then are we doing what we're doing in our strategic agenda to explicitly call that out, to explicitly say, we're gonna measure that as yep. an item that matters, to explicitly yep. say, we may say we're doing culturally responsive uh, teaching, but how well are we responding to that student we say we're culturally responding to? Do they know that we're doing that? And can we see gaps closing in addition? So for me, Tony, that being systematic means it took us a while to grow an inequitable system, believe it or not. Uh, because when we started out before, it was designed for a certain group of people. Over the years, we've included other people and kept, in many cases, the same system. Well, so, I mean, that we've got to figure out then how we incrementally change the way we're doing business, how we move from a teaching paradigm to a learner's paradigm, how we think and define what high quality is, what high performing is, and what high input is, which may mean more for certain groups than other groups at the time that they need it. 
So Aaron, I get that incremental, but systemic because we are wanting to impact the entire system. Yep. Right. G give me a couple of the metrics, not all, but a couple of the metrics that you would say, right, I am now able to evaluate the progress that we are making. It's incremental progress, but it's having an impact at system level. If you had to call out a couple from your own experience that you'd say, I'd be looking for this. Yeah. First of all, I think, let me, let me just define gaps that need to be really clear because I think we get these two right. things mixed up. One is we have an achievement gap, right? Not all people yep. are achieving at the same level. But the yep. goal there is to set a high quality standard, right? Yep. So then some metrics would be what, what's the goal we have, right? And then measuring the gaps to goal, we have to use data all the time in analytics. So then we need to look at what strategies that we put in there to raise everybody up, but maybe some populations up faster to even up. That's one metric. Then there's an opportunity metric that we fail to think about. And that is how well are we designing our educational system, both K-12 and higher ed, for our students to go into the workforce with technical skills and yes. employability skills that they need. We can measure those, Tony, we really can. Yes. And so how well are we getting people engaged like employers, as an example, on the front end of that discussion? How well are we measuring that piece of where we're offering everybody an equal or equitable opportunity to be employable in the marketplace with skills that that employer, as an example, is gonna say, that person is prepared. Let me just throw another one in since we're in this business. How well are we weeding in teachers of color, designing a systematic approach, a weed-in process to get them in teacher preparation? How well are we giving them the inputs to be successful? How well are we giving the professional development opportunities in the first three to five years of a teacher's experience that allows them to feel like they're an important addition to this profession and that they are high-performing themselves in that high-performing system? All of these are measurements, metrics. These are only a few, but yeah. those should be some of the very few. The other argument I would make, if we can somehow create a value proposition to where we know that teaching is core to any good, what I call humanistic product that takes us to a new generation of, of something hopefully prosperous for all of us in this nation and all nations, how well do we know that our work and our mission is moving toward that? Fantastic. So, you know, that to me, those are the items, some of the items yep. that I talk about. Okay, let, finally, I mean, I wish we had more time because then I'd want to take you into the K-12 and what you now in uh, Kentucky uh, initiating a, K, a K-20 agenda, right? Because of exactly the point that you make about the importance of the intersection between our high schools and then uh, into college life, uh, university, further education, vocational education and training. All of that I know is the system that you are working on. And it's the system that obviously we at NCE are working on. Let me just ask you though, a final question. The, the title of your book, of your workbook is Implementing Innovative Leadership. I hear the language around the incremental and the systemic, absolutely crucial. The, the innovative piece, just say a final word about the innovative piece. And the reason I'm asking you this is because there's a lot of conversation at the moment about the need for serious system shift 
around this agenda and wider agenda. So why is it important to talk about implementing innovative leadership? Yeah, first of all, I'll use COVID as an example or the Black Lives Matter movement. That tells us something. That's those things are hitting us in the head now. How well from a how well strategically are we planning on creating currently, not just for the future, a way to think about responding to those environmental changes, first of all, and then put some of those good practices into place. That's innovative. In other words, we found out the digital divide was even wider. You know, when we think about those that had access to internet, but not only that, those that knew how to use it at the level you need to use it, or even had the full bandwidth to use it at the level. That tells us one thing. Innovative to me is simply this, that you stay on a trajectory of growth, that you can see exactly and know how to measure incrementally, that you know how to measure in a formative way that you're creating a continuous improvement, that you're showing a model that you're willing to self-evaluate on a regular basis to not just respond to what's going on now, but to be proactive for 10 years down the road, to think about what it means in an educational environment with a vision in mind. So innovative is truly spending more time being proactive, more time visioning out what it looks like it's gonna take now to create an equitable system in 10, so you don't wait for 10 years, you're building on it and you know you're building toward it. So innovative means you don't do policy churn, you don't actually jump on one thing and try to do one big change and then move on to the next. It is about creating a systematic process where these things are triangulated and they're working together. How do higher education truly work with P12 and a professionally development process that's formative? How well do we actually work with our employers to make sure that our students are employable ready? How well do we work with K-12 in building a teacher core that they need for the future. All of these things have to come together and it takes leadership from all these different elements to actually get on the same page with the same definitions uh, and know how to measure at least the inputs we have as a leader to know that we're making that change that is needed toward that innovative output. And that is that can happen now. It's not just something in the future, but doing it now is formatively building for that big output that we want. Aaron Thompson, thank you. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate all you all do at NCE and I appreciate your leadership, sir. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.